Welcome to the podcast of Ideas. In mid-October at the Barbican in central London, we hosted the 14th of our annual Battle of Ideas festivals, with 450 speakers on over 100 panels, attracting an audience of about 3,500 people across the weekend, all keen to explore, understand and debate the important issues of our day. Over the coming weeks and months, we will be uploading audio and video from these discussions, so watch out for new posts on this podcast and our YouTube channel. The following session is titled Rulebook Britain, Are We in Love with Legislation? in partnership with Diageo. Okay, look, very very good panel, but just in terms of framework, I'm sure you've all read the blurb in in the brochure. Uh, I'm Austin Williams. I, I'm in uh, architecture and academia, uh, two of the worst uh, subjects to be in uh, if you're interested in Brexit, but also in terms of um, regulation. You know, you can't move for health and safety policy. Uh, you can't move for uh, well-being policy. And the number of workshops I go to in academia, as opposed to teaching anybody, uh, is, um, is shameful in the, in the extreme. So there's a, there's a whole list of... Uh, regulatory procedures that we have, not just in terms of the way that we moderate our jobs, but in terms of the way we want to moderate other people. So the regulatory framework, which again ties into the European Union conversation, although I don't know whether we're going to really necessarily bang on about Brexit uh, at this uh, at this conversation, is something that we really want to talk about. So I want you to think about some questions, but also some contributions, right? So don't just think you have to ask a question. If you disagree with the panelists, tell them. Don't let them get away with it. Give them some stick. If you, if you like what they say, then you can, you can endorse it and follow it up. And if you have any anecdotes, please feel free. Okay, so let me go through the panel in the order in which they're speaking. It's going to be very short. First of all, to speak on the far left here is uh, Rob Killick, who's the CEO uh, of Clarkswell and author of The UK After the Recession. Uh, next, we're going to have Joanne Nedler. Uh, who's a commentator, author of Too Nice to be a Tory. Next up, uh, we have Dan, Dan Mobley, uh, Global Corporate Relations Director at Diageo, whose drinks many of you will have sampled uh, to excess uh, last night, so I hope we're all feeling better than I am. Uh, and Mark, Mark Littlewood, who's the Director General at the Institute of Economic Affairs. So a great panel, uh, some people who are far too um, involved in uh, regulatory procedures to um, admit. Uh, if you would, Rob, kick us off, please. Uh, I'm assuming we are in love with regulation, and I want to start off by uh, trying to ex- explore a little bit about how we came to where we are today. Um, perhaps at the end with a little bit about what we should be thinking about it. Um, now, my, one of my favourite TV programmes over the last 10 years has been a programme called Deadwood, which, if you haven't seen it, you can get the box set. And it's set in South Dakota in the 1870s in America before the federal government uh, rule extended that far. So there was no state control at all over what was going on there. And it was run by pimps, hustlers, saloon bar owners, unscrupulous gold miners, and each of them were protected by their own armed gangs. After a while, they noticed that their customs were inconveniently murdering each other, and cholera-owned smallpox were killing off their workers. So they clubbed together for a marshal to impose some law and order, 
and they built a hospital so that people could be treated for illnesses. They didn't do that because they were uh, good-hearted. They did it in order to maintain order, the rule of law, and their businesses. And actually, that acts as a very good analogy for the roots of the modern state. And even now, uh, even though all those people in power today are not all pimps, hustlers, and unscrupulous employers, the state mainly exists to impose law and order and uh, maintain a welfare system. And about three-quarters of public spending in this country goes on those two things, if you include pensions and education. And essentially what was created in the modern <coughs> state was a system of protection of ourselves and our property from external threats, from other people. However, from the 1960s onwards, something began to happen which started with the imposition of crash helmets for motorcyclists and seat belts for drivers, that the state began to introduce rules and regulations which were not just to protect us from other people, but to protect us from ourselves, to protect us from our own behaviour. So now it's extremely commonplace for the state to intervene in more and more aspects of personal life into uh, our behaviour, such as anti-smoking laws, curbs on alcohol, and now an increasing focus on food, diet, sugar, salt, etc., etc. So I think that, that that's a very, very concise uh, uh, description of how we got to uh, where we are. Now, the question is, why? Why is it that this happened? And I think this is a very interesting uh, process. I'm a big fan of the German sociologist Ulrich Beck, who wrote about um, risk and the growth of a risk society. He's not the only one, but he, he was one of the first people. And he argued that in the modern era, the disappearance of religious beliefs and big political beliefs, such as socialism and communism, and alongside that, the decline of organizations of social solidarity, like trade unions, uh, and other kind of community, traditional community organizations, has helped to, uh, and the, and the uh, lesser role being played by the traditional family structure, which is also very important, has uh, encouraged a heightened sense of personal risk and vulnerability in the general population, and a focus on the individual, an increasing focus on the individual and individual protection. And uh, in that same period, politicians and other people in public life have responded to this by en engaging with our concerns in really the only way they know, which is through meddling more and more in our personal lives, uh, thinking that often uh, through well -meaning, uh, for well-meaning reasons, but particularly around and increasingly around health. Uh, and... Uh, the focus on sugar and salt in food in particular has been a very big thing recently, which I'm sure we'll discuss at some point. And what's really interesting now is that even issues which would once have been seen as law and order issues, such as the surge of knife crime in London, has been is being redefined as a public health issue. And uh, uh, Sadiq Khan's campaign against knife crime is being framed within the context of public health, whereas in the past it would certainly have been seen as law and order. This increased meddling and intervention into our lives uh, essentially infantilizes us through taking away our own responsibility for our own behavior. 
And I, I, I'm not going to go into I'm just stating that now. I, I don't think I've got time to go into it. We can come back, back to that. And apart from anything else, food without salt and sugar just tastes terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect timing. Joanne, Joanne. Okay, well, I, I think um, you can tell from the start that none of us are politicians because we're all obviously all trying to actually answer the question, which was, you know, are we in love with legislation? And I chewed this over and I came to the conclusion that, well, we are. We, we must be in love with legislation. And if not in love with it, we've been inured into thinking that it's very much the best thing for us. We were just, Mark and I were discussing earlier and we both had come to the same conclusion that we were sort of addicted to legislation. Um, I remember, I'm old enough to remember, Neil Hamilton, who was a uh, rather um, oafish minister at the Conservative Party conference back in the 1990s, tearing up reams of paper, which was supposed to uh, show that he wanted to get rid of lots of regulations. And, uh, I mean, it was a popular trope amongst Conservatives. But the idea that you deregulated and the idea that the nanny state was sort of a bad thing did have currency, and I feel that over the last 20 to 25 years, a lot of that currency has diminished, and we're all much more in the grip of uh, a legislating state. And, and that, I think, explains partly why we could well be on the verge of electing a Corbyn government, which would obviously be you know, a highly regulating government. It intends to bring quite a lot of, of business into its orbit and it also is openly keen on regulating the free press, so, which seems you know, pretty extraordinary to me. Um, the last Labour government apparently introduced seven new rules stroke regulations stroke laws each day that it was in office, but apparently that's not enough for us. Um, so we've now got, you know, two, the two main political parties are, are led by, by nannies. You call, you know, um, Corbyn is, if you like, super nanny, and then um, May is Nanny Light. But um, I know a lot of the uh, scope of this conversation was to talk about uh, business. So I think briefly, I would like to just mention Brexit as an example, I think, of, uh, of how the, the narrative and the conversation about Brexit since the vote seems to exemplify the extent to which we're seduced by regulation. Because there really hasn't been a particularly, uh, I think, cogent case made since Leave won. Um, as to uh, how it could open up a platform for us to deregulate, to have a competitive Britain. Uh, we really haven't heard much at all about the concept of Singapore on the, on the edges of, of uh, continental Europe. It seems that everybody's too afraid to make, to make that argument. And instead, the whole leave argument has been taken over by either, you know, issues of sovereignty, um, issues of uh, immigration, issues of borders. And we really haven't heard very much about free markets and you know, how you encourage entrepreneurialism, which I think seems pretty extraordinary given that you know, a lot of the argument, I think uh, sensible liberal argument in favor of leaving the EU was to contrast us with this you know, overburdensome situation on the continent that was holding back particularly the French, but also to a certain extent you know, growth in, uh, in, uh, in the German economy. So, uh, like Rob, I, uh, I wanted to go back to sort of investigate you know, how and why this has happened. And I'm going to be very Nietzscheian and say that I think you know, the, death of, the death of God has, uh, has a great deal to do with this. 
because um, over the last century, uh, we've had a you know, decline in traditional sort of belief structures and traditional um, institutions that have held us together as a society. And I think we're not actually, um, as humans, particularly keen on being atomized. So we've reached out for some other way of regulating our activities and the way we deal with each other. And in a secular state, this seems to have become much more the business of the state and of all the different layers of government that uh, um, you know, have developed in, in that period. Uh, I think, understandably, you know, since the Second World War, there's been a step change in what we expect from the state and how we relate to it as individuals. And um, if you like, the, the institution that most that has sort of risen above all others, because frankly, we don't seem to have much faith in anything very much anymore, whether it's you know the police, the judiciary, politicians, the press. But we all have immense faith in the National Health Service. And politicians are aware of that and give it much more power. And I think as a consequence, in a sense, governments are entitled to legislate for how we live our lives because we pay for our health care collectively. Um, and therefore, um, in a sense, the government has a direct stake in how they spend that money. Um, so the NHS, I think, is, uh, is, is hugely central to this argument. Um, very quickly, I just also wanted to point to the way in which we dealt with the financial crisis, that um, governments and parties pretty much across the political spectrum bought into the idea that what we needed to do to avoid another credit crunch, another financial crash, was to have more regulation. Uh, nowhere was there a particularly cogent argument made for um, liberalizing the economy, for creating you know, more competition, smaller institutions. Uh, it was all about you know, top-down um, in interference from the government. And I think, you know, that the kind of supremacy of the NHS and the fallout of the financial system has left us in this situation whereby we all just buy into the idea that, that regulation is, is the way to go. Thank you very much. Round of applause, please. <laughs> no, Dan. Thanks. Um, when I think about are we in love with, uh, with legislation and regulation, who's the we here? Um, I think it's indisputable that governments, the machinery of government and all its offshoots, are in love with regulation. The last estimate I saw was that total regulatory costs, and this came from the government itself in the UK, on business are over £100 billion annually. And that was from 2005, and I don't think we've seen significant deregulation since then. It's reached the point of absurdity that this week, with all seriousness, one quango of the government's actually proposing to regulate the toppings you can have on your pizza. You know, and I'm not actually making that up. There is a definition uh, being thought of about how big a pizza can be and what you can put on it. My own industry, the, the premium alcohol business, is under siege from regulation. And uh, in the last few months, we have engaged in debates with government and others around what we can put on our labels um, how our products can be priced. It used to be duty, the tax you pay, was seen as a necessary evil for the joys of drinking to pay for other things the government wanted. Now it's seen as a means of getting you to drink less. And as a result, British consumers, British drinkers, pay 40% of all the alcohol duties collected in the whole of the European Union. You know, I do not understand why there aren't riots on the streets about this. Why is Britain paying so disproportionately for the pleasure that a simple drink can bring? And I'm speaking on another panel after this, actually, on whether we should ban marketing or not. And there are a lot of people who are actually advocating that there should be marketing bans on all sorts of products, including alcohol. 
I was engaged earlier this year in a fantastic debate around Captain Morgan Rum, one of our fun rum brands. And Captain Morgan, the debate was whether we could use the Captain uh, to market our products anymore. And uh, it ended on, uh, on the debate as to whether Captain Morgan was a historical figure or whether he was a, a, a made-up figure. Because if he was a historical figure, we could use him, it was fine. There were real buccaneers. But if he was just a made-up pirate, that might be appealing to children. Um, turns out he was a historical figure, not a particularly nice one, uh, who raided across the Caribbean, but we were allowed to continue selling that brand. But, I mean, come on, who actually believes that that is a problematic way of selling a particular product? So where is this coming from, this desire to kind of constantly regulate ever further into this space? I mean, different panelists have come up with different theories. I'm not going to expand a particular theory. All I would say is, does the public actually want this? Um, and overwhelmingly, when we ask them, they say no. You know, it tends to be a very small but very vocal minority of campaigners who push for these increasingly extreme regulations. Um, and it's certainly not warranted by any objective analysis of the problem you're trying to tackle um, overall, alcohol consumption in the UK has been falling for decades, as it has in other rich countries. Businesses like mine can continue to succeed because we sell you better products, but fewer of them. Um, rates of underage drinking have fallen very sharply. I mean, I checked the latest stats. So over the last 12 years, binge drinking has fallen 15%. Harmful drinking occasions have fallen 22%. People drinking on five days or more have fallen by a third Underage drinking has fallen by 40%, and now somewhere between one in four and one in five young people don't drink at all in the UK. Hospital admissions related to alcohol consumption have fallen by half in that period. Now, that's not to be complacent. There's still alcohol harm out there, but the idea there's some kind of crisis of booze Britain uh, across this nation that needs to be addressed by ever more intrusive regulation simply isn't backed up by those statistics that come from the government itself. So where is it coming from? And I'd, I'd urge you to look at the motivations and the background of the campaigners who are calling for this stuff. Um, you know where I'm coming from. I sell alcohol products very transparently and very happy to defend that. But look at the people who are calling for ever more intrusive regulation. Um, some of them are backed by temperance groups. Um, some of them are backed by public health campaigners. And you have to ask, what is the underlying problem that they're trying to fix and why? I think a lot of it, we've talked about God today. Uh, my favorite quote on this subject is, is from C.S. Lewis, uh, and he picks up on this religious theme, and he talks about those who would torment us for our own good will torment us with our end. They will never stop because they do so with the approval of their own consciences. You know, they think they're on a mission from God, and therefore that justifies the ends they would pursue. And when it doesn't work... They don't ask, is the regulation they're pushing for not working? They just simply move on and ask for a different form of more intrusive regulation. But I'll finish by saying don't despair, don't give up hope. It is possible to roll back regulation. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen very often, but it does from time to time. I mean, you criticised the, the last Labour administration, but I would thank Tessa Jowell, the wonderful woman that she was, for the reform of the Licensing Act in 2003, which came into effect in 2005. You might remember, if you're old enough, that this was going to unleash Sodom and Gomorrah on Britain, that you would have round-the-clock super pubs pumping out cheap alcohol and that it would destroy the fabric of our nation. Simply has not happened, and most people would say it's been a huge success. It was violently opposed by uh, regulators at the time, and Tessa Jowell and others really had to fight very hard to push this through, but they looked at the evidence of what would work, 
They looked at whether this would drive harm or not. They concluded it would not, and they implement, implemented a deregulation. It was hugely su successful. So I'd simply finish by saying, if you've got a social problem you need to address, focus on that problem. If a minority of people are hurting themselves or others through a particular activity, find ways to reach them, educate them, give them incentives on their behavior. But don't take this whole of population approach, layering on regulation on regulation on regulation, which simply hurts people who might want to enjoy a nice pizza and a glass of something special from Diageo. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Thanks very much. Yes, this question of are we in love with it, I, uh, I'm not sure the answer is that we are in love with regulation or legislation. I mean, it's certainly very widespread and increasing, but, you know, the same could be said about influenza at this time of year, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're in love with influenza. Uh, we seem to have a particularly virulent strain, however, of regulation. So it's widespread and growing, but that does not necessarily suggest that there is widespread affection for something. Uh, uh, we at the IEA uh, every year or so put together something we call the Nanny State Index, which is supposed to be, as far as we can organise the methodology, a neutral analysis of exactly uh, how much meddling and intervention is there in each of the EU 28, as presently constituted, about full to the EU 27, of course, uh, in various areas of what you might call lifestyle products. Um, tobacco, e-cigarettes, alcohol, um, and food. And it's difficult to precisely measure those interventions. People could, could come in and criticise our methodology. Uh, but the UK comes towards the top of the list. I was just looking uh, at it now at the 28 countries in our last uh, survey. Finland was top, the UK was second. If you want to go to the most libertarian country in the EU, 28, in terms of meddling, and that's the Czech Republic, who's always come... 28th. Um, we've searched and scratched our heads to try and find, is there any common theme here? You know, is it sort of northern European countries are very nannying and Mediterranean countries less so, or richer countries more meddling and poorer countries less so? We can't really find any strong theme at the moment, with one possible exception, that it seems that Catholic countries are less meddling than Protestant countries, but I'm not quite sure what the public policy implication is of, of, of such a, a finding. Of course, regulation goes way beyond um, the, uh, what's usually called the nanny state, dealing with uh, the products that Diageo put forward, or the tobacco industry, or the sh sugar industry. It is across the board. Um, Joanne mentioned the financial crisis. We seem to have deluded ourselves into believing that in 2008, financial services were some wholly unregulated, devil-take-the-hindmost sort of cowboy industry in which there was sort of nobody overseeing it at all. The opposite is true. In 1979, there was one financial services regulator for every 11,000 people employed in finance. By 2010, that had increased to one regulator for every 300 people. Uh, working in finance. And I mean state regulators here. I'm not talking about compliance officers in the company. <coughs> if we continue on this trajectory, by the year 2070, there will be more regulators than people working in finance. Every bank cashier will be able to have their own personal regulator on their shoulder morning, noon and night as they go about their tasks. Uh, the rules in financial services 
unbelievable. It's, it's about 10 years since I looked at the, uh, the uh, a little under, because I looked at it after the financial crisis, the FSA regulatory handbook. Um, the regulatory handbook contained 10 sections. The section titled Prudential Standards is divided into 11 <coughs> subsections. The subsection uh, Prudential Sourcebook for banks, building societies and investment firms is made up of 14 sub-subsections. The sub-subsection Market Risk is divided into 11 sub-sub-subsections. The sub-sub-subsection of interest rates has 66 paragraphs. There are over a million paragraphs of regulations in the rulebook. And this is one of the industries that is considered in the public mind to have been insufficiently regulated. It seems to me hard to imagine what sufficient regulation uh, would be. Uh, so this isn't just about what you might call controversial products, such as alcohol uh, and tobacco. Why is this happening? I've got six uh, theories, um, which I will fire off in ten seconds each. The first that has been touched on is the costs are not borne by the regulators themselves. So there is a, a misalignment of incentives. If you are the head of the, I don't know, Stop Child Obesity by Reducing Sugar Intake initiative in the Department of Health, uh, you are incentivized, uh, even if it is subconscious, to continue to show that there is a widespread problem. I don't know anyone who's worked in public health who's actually gone to the relevant minister and said, actually, problem solved, actually. You can make us all redundant. We've, we've pretty much cracked it. Um, drink driving, no longer a problem. Don't need many more advertising about that. We've, we've, we've cracked that one. Please make us all redundant. No, uh, they are incentivized, even if subconscious, to continue to look for problems where there may be none there. The second is, I think, an observation made by Hayek, that psychologically intelligent and educated people uh, believe that they can, in a benign way, design the world. And if you do see any problem, whether this is a kid dying of alcohol poisoning or um, too many fat people on the streets or is pizza making people too fat, you tend to believe that you can do something about it. I think Hayek was right when he said the curious task of economics <coughs> is to teach men how little they know about the world that they deign to design. Uh, so, um, the, there's been no fight back, I just wanted to say, in my view. Uh, Diageo, big business, the CBI, I think, need to do a lot more in this regard. Uh, the alcohol industry tell me to drink responsibly. I don't really know what the definition of that is. Should I never get drunk? Um, is it okay for me to get drunk once a week? Uh, or would you condemn my activity if I did that? Um, uh, some people say businesses never, never are able to point to regulations that they want repealed. You ask businesses what you want us to repeal to most help you, and they sort of arm and are about it. I think that's because businesses are more worried about the flow than the stock, actually. Once you've complied uh, with regulations, once you've built whatever it is, the elevator for disabled people or uh, whatever signage you need to put up, it's a sunk cost, so it's the flow that people are worried about the future. Uh, the NHS has already been mentioned. If I'm paying for your health care, I do have an interest in what you're doing. We may need to change the... Uh, uh, the model. Um, what can we do about it? I think we need to ridicule regulators more. I think business needs to litigate against regulators more. This has been a suggestion by Charles Murray that some legal defence fund needs to be set up such that uh, cases can be brought to court uh, for showmanship, if nothing else. Uh, and I think we need to document more what's happening. I wonder whether 
what I think has been a successful campaign, even if not a particularly educational one, about saying everything that comes out of the Remain campaign is Project Fear, needs also to be extended to everything that comes out of the public health campaign as well. Thanks very much. Very good. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, we've only got half an hour remaining, but there's a couple of questions which I'll just put to the panel, which you can just think about or ignore, depending on your mood, which come from something you just mentioned there, Mark. Uh, First of all, Dan, in terms of you saying uh, the social responsibility argument, who believes this regulation? I'll tell you who believes it. It's the the, uh, corporate sector uh, who have public health as your middle name. Uh, I remember trying to organise a debate with Yagio on transport, and I wasn't allowed to do it because it might imply that you were endorsing transport as a drink-driving activity. So, suddenly it's this. So the corporate sector are completely imbued with this idea of, that you have to play some kind of role, and maybe the pundits don't really believe it. And the second thing, which is um, what what uh, you're arguing, uh, which was the um, idea that, in terms of uh, Brexit and the populist response to this, actually isn't, isn't that symbolic of the fact that people are revoking. You know, you might have Hillary Clinton saying that gendered toilets is the biggest issue for, for uh, America, but the ordinary punters say, what the hell is that all about, right? We've got our own lives to live. We don't really need this regulation. So there was a fight back in some ways, surely, wasn't there, as a reflection of the Brexit campaign. So maybe there is a fight back uh, against the technocrats taking over Greece. Anyway, those are my, my thoughts. Take it or leave it, as you will. I've got some hands in the audience. Can I just see quickly who's got thoughts? Got one, two, three. Okay, we'll take this gentleman at the front here, please. Okay, I'll, t- I'll tell you my thoughts, and then people can come back. Es- uh, essentially, I think uh, the less society thinks we are rational, the more they think they should regulate us. So in the 19th century, we started with an idea of rationality. By the end of the 19th century, capitalism wasn't working very well, so they concluded, well, people aren't that rational. So we'll plan. So they have big plans. So they nationalize industries and so on. By the 1960s, that isn't working very well. So they start to say, well, we need micro-interventions, so social works created. And increasingly by the 80s and the 90s, the level of intervention uh, accelerated, partly because political parties and political individuals became more and more distant from the public. So the public were seen as increasingly alien and the elites and regulators became more and more uh, hysterical. And so we're now in a situation where, as you say, the level of regulation is insane. Um, And I do wonder when there will be a backlash against this because if you get in a cab now and hear a taxi driver use the term political correctness, he's not just talking about language. He's talking about smacking bans, health and safety initiatives, transgender... The term political correctness is now being used for this massive areas of regulation which extend across uh, people's lives and are becoming increasingly restricted. Thank you very much. gentleman with the microphone at the back in the green. Um, I think it is clear that we've got uh, far far too much regulation, but the difficulty (coughs) is to uh, communicate... To people, if you say regulation, well, you know, what's it got to do with me? Uh, actually, it's costing consumers. And the point of 100 billion, uh, I didn't find that when I was on the internet looking for stuff. I think it's a very powerful point. And you need to develop that. Um, we, we need to understand that all the national insurance we all pay in a whole year pays for that regulation. 
Now, do you want that? And if, you could, if we can make the case, we have to develop it, that it's a cost for ordinary people. Big businesses won't speak up for it. Um, small businesses haven't got time. Um, but it's the consumer who is paying. And if a consumer can understand that, then perhaps we could roll, roll it back. Although, again, I think if I could ask one question just to leave uh, for, for the panel for later, is what do you start with? You mentioned the licensing laws as, as, a, as a change, and, and that's interesting. But I wonder whether you've got your list of 10 regulations that you would repeal tomorrow so that a consumer or a voter could say, okay, what, what difference does it make? Yeah, that's the difference it would make. Okay, thanks. My question is, why do you think politicians have stepped away from making the case for deregulation over the past decade or two? Um, I mean, I think part of the problem with our political crisis at the moment is that politicians and regulators have got, uh, well, regulators are not particularly accountable, but politicians are now accountable for such vast swathes of our lives that people have begun to lose trust in them being able to do it very well. Uh, so if you take transport, for example, um, you know, widespread disdain for the rail system, yet it remains semi-nationalised, and politicians don't seem to be willing to step away from having that accountability. Um, if you take financial services, and Mark mentioned the, uh, the, the vast rule books of, of regulation we have now, uh, and fortunately or unfortunately, I happen to work on that. So I, I've seen personally since the financial crisis that you have these creation of new rules which set the barrier to entry so high and reduce competition that financial institutions are now not particularly responsive to consumers and what people want. Um, now, I would think that this is not just about stepping away from a politician, stepping away from, from you know, taking any action, not doing anything. Actually, they need to take very definite action. That could be breaking up institutions. If you take rail uh, awarding contracts, which are not designed as essentially temporary monopolies for the franchises. You know, there's definite actions that, that politicians could take here to, to deal with the accountability that they've got in a way that's a, a bit more responsive and might rebuild trust. So I just want to understand what your, your thoughts are on that. I'm an accountant, and... Uh... My uh, job is actually to defend small businesses, often little manufacturing plants, usually employing people, um, from a lot of this stuff. And I, I can only just assure you on the panel, this is actually extremely hard. It's a hidden job because it's done by uh, subcontractors like my little firm. But it would probably surprise you to know just how many registrations it takes to set up a small business, a husband and wife company. I mean... If you were setting up a company afresh, husband and wife, guess how many things you would need to have done in order to trade successfully legally. Can I hear some figures? No. Tell us. Well, okay. Can I suggest to you 44 different registrations, accounts you would have to have? How many returns each year do you have to make to various arms of the state? And the answer is 68. I keep a permanent register of, uh, of, of, of the, uh, uh, the various bits of work that we have to do on behalf of our clients. And that's before the 25 further optional returns that have to be sent in under certain circumstances for those employers with slightly uh, unusual circumstances. So probably in the first year, a minimum of 100 different returns that have to be made for a two-employee company. The registrations are killing small businesses. They are disempowering people. And it is not reasonable for us to continue this way. There is actually a huge political opportunity <coughs> for somebody who has the guts to think out the problem and actually represent the, 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 the small businesses, the, the larger businesses, the people who make the wealth in this country. Well, I think that the, uh, the, the issue of, about the role of politicians is very um, interesting. And I'll just go back and explain perhaps a bit more of what I said at the beginning. I think that 
politicians uh, it, and uh, people who and civil servants and people who run our uh, our society on that on that level really do not have any big ideas. They don't have any. The big ideas disappeared a long time ago. So if they're going to do anything, it is going to be, and it has been, more on the micromanagement level. And that's, you know, where that's the, the, the way that they operate. You know, they, as Mark explained, you know, that's the, what they're there to do. The issue, the interesting thing is, why is there no real opposition to that? And I think there is a difference of opinion actually emerging here because uh, Dan said that people are against a lot of these regulations, which, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis is, is true. But I would say that overall people are actually predisposed to accept the idea of a regulated society, uh, you know, that it has become a cultural uh, thing. It's the way we live our lives and have done for a very long time. It's normal. And, and what you, what, when looking back, what you see is that there is often initial resistance and unhappiness with new rules and regulations. But within, once they're imposed, within a very short space of time, they become internalized into people, accepted, and they just become normal life. I mean, I think about smoking. I was, I was outside here yesterday with somebody who wanted to have a cigarette outside. And they were looking around saying, are there any no smoking signs? And is there anyone smoking, right? Because I don't want to be the only one smoking here. And, 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 and whereas 10 years ago, they wouldn't even thought, thought twice, or they probably wouldn't be smoking in the back of the room. But, you know, there's, there, there is a, a, there's, a, there's both a predisposition to accept it and a, and a resistance to... They go hand in hand. But the overall tendency is towards more acceptance and more regulation. And I think the only thing in the end that can counteract that, and I think Brexit is, is kind of part of that, is, is new forms of social solidarity, new forms of political organisations, which are committed to those uh, uh, forms of individual freedom and autonomy. They don't exist. I mean, they exist in embryo in some places, but they are not in any, anywhere that I'm aware of, in, uh, even in America, uh, you know, in, in, in a dominant and leading position. So we can't expect anything to change. Individuals can't change this. They can rebel on an individual level and, you know, feel free to light up at the back sort of thing. But, you know, that, that's really not going to make any difference at all in the long run. And it has to be a more social and political movement which, which is going to turn the tables on this. I think kind of in a way of answering both of those questions, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily about picking out individual regulations that one would get rid of. I think, you know, Rob is right, really. It's about the big idea. And my sense is that, you know, um, post the Berlin Wall coming down, the right was, you know, was, was kind of became quite complacent. And I think the culture wars have largely been won um, by the left, and that's why we're in the situation that we are, because you have, you know, conservative stroke right-wing um, uh, politicians being really very unsure of what their core beliefs are, and very afraid to be represented as, as cruel, uncaring, um, in, uh, lacking in compassion, um, and, and therefore all too willing to sort of take up the, the cause of small-scale regulation 
it, um, when I say small scale regulation, I mean regulation as being the way to solve this rather than you know addressing the, the core problem. So the, the reason why I raised the financial crisis is that you know there are all sorts of things that government should have been accountable for and politicians should have been accountable for and bankers should have been accountable for, but that was kind of lost in all this <coughs> micro-regulation. And you know, bankers should have been prosecuted and politicians should have been made to answer why you know credit had become so cheap and money had no value to itself anymore. Really interesting and often asked question by the gentleman in the green, you know, what are the ten regulations you get rid of? And I think the, the problem with that question is you either pick regulations which are divisive and controversial. For example, I'd get rid of the working time directive, probably in a minority. I'd probably lose that political battle. But that would be a big saving. Or you pick ridiculous regulations that would make no difference of themselves but just point to how absurd regulation is. You know, for example, the EU regulation that companies that sell bottled water are not allowed to make the claim in advertising that their product helps with dehydration. I mean, presumably the point for the product, right? Uh, but, but it's not obvious if they were able to make that claim, it would transform the world. Similarly, that uh, there's an EU regulation against uh, children under the age of eight being allowed to blow up a balloon without adult supervision. I mean, clearly that should be repealed. But it's not obvious it would supercharge British GDP if it was repealed, right? There's not a massive market in seven-year-olds blowing up balloons without adults around. So uh, um, my... My solution to it would be to tackle the problem in an overarching way, which is to bring back caveat emptor, um, buyer beware, and then the the regulators, um, the Food Standards Agency, the financial services regulators and the rest compete. So I would allow supermarkets to have a caveat emptor aisle. Uh, None of the food is labelled. It has a big label on it saying buyer beware. And uh, if you are buying something that is toxic or a chicken that is chlorinated or an alcoholic drink that's 56% alcohol, you are taking the risk. And you know that as soon as you walk into the risk zone. We'll see whether there's a market for it. I think there would be. For those who are risk adverse, you can go to the other aisles in the supermarket. They are wholly regulated by advertising standards and the Food Standards Agency and everything else. And let's see whether consumers want the regulated product with labels on the side of it, or whether consumers have a desire, as long as properly informed, to buy the wholly unregulated product. And my hunch is the caviar emptor products would find a very big, successful and profitable market. Darwinian supermarket. Can can I just come in um, just very quickly? I mean, Mark's challenge at the start, which I think you also joined in on sort of business, you should do more. And I have some sympathy for that, but... You need to be a little careful here. Um, first of all, because there's a producer interest in some of this, so taking off the sort of Diageo hat for a moment. To answer your question, why are politicians sometimes not deregulating? Where's that impetus gone? Well, you've got to look at who benefits through this process. And some large businesses love regulation because it reduces competition, shuts people out, uh, it makes it harder for small companies, innovation challenges to, to, to grow up. And deeper than that, if we were to tell you what was an acceptable amount of drinking, Mark, we'd almost certainly be sued for it, you know, um, because someone would go over it and then claim that we told them it was okay. Um, I think there's an interesting example of this around how, where the government has moved in terms of telling you how, because we rely on governments to tell you that, but we rely on them to be dispassionate and look at the evidence when making the, the case. And to me, it's very interesting. In the past, drinking guidelines around the world in most countries, including here, were set by dispassionate civil servants 
including some professional medical experts, looking at evidence from a variety of different groups. Now, I don't think that process should be run by alcohol producers. There would be a clear conflict of interest there, but I don't think temperance groups should be involved in that too. Um, I don't think those that campaign actively for policies um, uh, to, to ban marketing of alcohol products, campaign actively to increase taxation on alcohol products, should also themselves be the ones who tell you how much you should be drinking. And that's what's actually happened in the UK in the, the last, uh, last two years. So the final part I make, coming back to kind of what do we do about this, you know, there needs to be better mechanisms for removing failed regulation, and that's very hard to do, and we've never really cracked that effectively. You know, you would talk of, you know, one in, one out. If you introduce a new regulation, you should identify a defunct one, and there's plenty around there to take out. Um, but I also think it'd be worth just looking at this point around costs, and, and you made, the accountant made this point really strongly here. You know, the dispersal of costs in the general population versus the regulation, the something-may-be-done argument. So a politician can easily say, I'm dealing with an issue by introducing a regulation to get some heat off them, and the costs of that are not immediate and not impactful. So in our industry, there are people who drink too much who are dependent on alcohol and hurt themselves as a result of doing it. They are in the minority, but they are there. Now, we know there are things that work in addressing that through health service providers and others, screening and brief interventions, um, addiction treatment services, etc. Those are being slashed to the bone at the moment, and instead we're bringing in whole of population measures, including just tax you more and ban stuff to try and do it, and it does not work. So I think that's a really important uh, way of addressing these issues rather than regulation. Yes, I, th I think that's an ex another very good example of what we're talking about, the, the idea that we're going to be sued if we get it wrong, or, or people or companies will be sued. Because um, that points towards the idea that the regulation is actually just a symptom of a more general social problem, which is also exemplified by the idea that if we say it's okay to drink 20 units a week and somebody does and then they fall ill, then it'll be our fault, your fault for doing that. I, I, um, I mean, if you think accounting's bad, I, I work in the play industry. I'm, I'm on the, the board of Scotland's National Play Organisation and, and, and regulation in terms of play and children's experience of community um, has been massively uh, uh, regulated over the last kind of 20, 30 years. And that was mainly due, uh, in our estimation, uh, Place Scotland's estimation, to the expansion of the Health and Safety at Work Act from work activities to uh, more free-ranging leisure activities and playgrounds. Um, and that, that kind of mission created by the HSE um, was a huge problem, and it's you know, destroyed uh, community in a whole load of ways. Um, but if, if what was said here is that yeah it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's a symptom then attacking regulation or attacking other things is not the way forward what you have to do is actually promote autonomy rather than attacking promotes uh, self-rule by ordinary people is something that we can promote and we can move forward to and that is the best way to undermine a whole load of these trends cool i think um just to maybe uh, uh build on or maybe counter mark's uh, buyer beware aisle i think one of the things that makes this quite uh, a polarizing debate is this idea of kind of all or nothing. We either regulate everything or there's no labels and it's all chlorinated chicken and it doesn't matter if all your customers die. Um, but what about the kind of uh, uh, Milton Friedman's proposed solution of certification, right? Is there a role of government in, in creating uh, uh, standards that people can kind of choose to adhere to uh, and then display that for... It's still putting the responsibility on the consumer, uh, but helping them make that informed choice. I am a former financial services regulator, so feel free to ridicule me. I'm arguing myself out of a job, but I got a house out of it, so I'm quite happy. Um, <laughs> if you print the FCA handbook now on A4, it's uh, six foot tall. 
Um, and that's in addition to the PRA handbook, the supervisory statements, all the rest of it. Um, and I was trying to think why. And the, there's, I, I think Rob's point is right. There are people with no imagination. If you look at the staff that make up the FCA, this is being recorded, right? Um, if you look at the staff, there is a sort of body of staff, the old guard who are sort of left of centre, quite pro-regulation, quite pro the big state, and very anti, um, anti-capitalist, anti-bankers. Um, and then at the same time, there is a lot of revolving doors, senior people going from banks to regulators, back to banks, back to industry groups, etc. And they quite like barriers to entry. Um, and those are the two reasons I can think of as to why we have so much regulation in just the industry I work in. Um, it was mentioned in regards to Brexit, and uh, there's no mention of deregulations. If anything, I heard sort of fear-mongering that by leaving Brexit, the Tory are trying to get rid of uh, workers' protectionism, protection and things like that. So it was sort of mentioned on the other side, saying that Brexit was a means to deregulate. I think that, to an extent, politicians on the right have lost faith um, to an extent in their ideas. Uh, I think there needs to be a revival in how regulation is discussed in politics uh, by people who are against it um, as not um, this very outdated view of the robber robber baron um, wearing his top hat and uh, strutting around London. Um, But it actually needs to be seen as something that where regulation has been brought in often to favour the biggest businesses, those which wish to be complacent and those with the most resources um, and time to influence politicians. And I think that we need to have um, the, the argument for deregulation needs to be focused on its effects on small business and enterprise um, rather than it being seen as a protection against the evil robber barons. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, that's it from the floor. It's coming back to you guys. Uh, I could go in reverse order if you fancy. Okay. On the BioBeware point, I was using hyperbole to illustrate the point, right? I doubt there's many consumers who want to buy a food product that says on it, this may contain Novachok, the risk is yours, right? I mean, most likely, the products would have guarantees and labels that were market responsive, not regulatory responsive. So I just don't know whether people want to know the proportion of sugar in Cocoa Pops or whatever, but if you're in the Cocoa Pops business, you will go and discover that. Um, I don't know how many smokers need to be told that uh, smoking might cause lung cancer. I imagine most of them know that, but the producers of tobacco will know that. Uh, So there will be labels and guarantees there in the BioBeware aisle. It just won't be imposed by the state. You will have common law rights if you're under the Trade Descriptions Act and the rest of it. One point which has come up a bit, but come back a little bit to what Dan said and uh, another way of cracking this. I've already sort of criticised big business, but I want to criticise the Consumers Association as well. Um, The Consumers Association, as I understand it, have a self-denying ordinance in which they do not talk about tax in terms of how it affects their customers, I mean, uh, the the people they purport to represent. This is utterly ridiculous. So we have a consumers organisation and the magazine Witch which are essentially geared up to be anti-producers, you know, to criticise um, companies for their prices being too high or whatever, but to make no criticism of the government that prices are being uh, whacked up higher by over-regulation or taxation. So my challenge to big business, because I totally take Dan's point, that if the argument comes between people who are making a profit out of selling good X 
and the supposedly neutral regulators, you're on a hiding to nothing, even if your science is better. But um, I think it would be good to raise an enormous endowment, not an annual flow of funds, to set up a genuine consumers' association that had, I don't know, £20 million to get it going and just lived off that endowment in perpetuity. And their only role and founding statutes would be to complain about regulation and tax and how this affected customers of Guinness, vacuum cleaners, lollipops, or whatever else. I think that would be a voice that should be in the debate. And at the moment, the consumer's voice is thin, almost silent, but when heard, is the Consumers Association usually criticising producers, not government? Yeah, I, I can be brief. I like the point around it's a false dichotomy. Um, I think you're right. Um, we don't want no regulation. It's a good idea to stop children under 18 from drinking alcohol. We wouldn't want to encourage that. You know, people shouldn't drink and drive. And to the extent we're allowed to say these things, we say it. And there's a wealth of education work we, we do around that. And the chlorinated chickens thing, I mean, it, it amuses me that, you know, nobody knew about chlorinated chickens two years ago. Yeah, it's like a, become a bizarre weaponized point in the... Brexit debate and people go to the US and eat chicken all the time. So I don't kind of buy that. But I agree this idea of proportionality. So, and what I would love to see is when, you know, find a way to force, and I think I love the idea of empowering consumers, force politicians to think, is this proportionate? What is the problem you're trying to solve? Is this a proportionate response? Evidence, will it work? You know, I've mentioned some of the examples where, you know, there's no evidence to support this, but there's something must be done argument triumphs. And this cost versus benefit piece. You know, are the costs really worth it? Because the moment we hear some very questionable claims around benefits and no one talks about the costs to consumer and wider society. And if we could start to really hold politicians to account on those principles, we would have less and better regulation. I mean, of course there's a role for government. I'm not suggesting there isn't a role for government, but the role for government is essentially to liberalise markets as much as possible and to empower consumers. So I have no problem with labelling. I think labelling can assist markets because labelling helps people to make informed choices. And I think this is the confusion that the current government is under, um, that they just they, there doesn't seem to be, to my mind, a sense that they really understand or like markets or competition and that when it comes to regulating business, rather than um, you know, creating more competition, they would rather just say, well, we're going to cap energy prices, for instance. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my sense is that, as a number of people have said here, I think we need to get back to some sort of core, uh, core beliefs in politics, and that would really you know, help to solve a lot of this. I'm not terribly optimistic that it's going to happen, though. <laughs> Well, um, I don't think the answer is going to come from within either business or the state. I mean, you, de you described the close relationship between the regulators and the, and the financiers, and that's true right across the whole of uh, British uh, business, right? That, that the state has been intervening in business and for many, many, many years, and you know, it is almost a corporate state in that sense, and not quite, I wouldn't go that far, but it is almost. So I think the answer has to come from somewhere else. And I thought it was interesting, somebody, I can't remember who it was, mentioned the fact that Catholic countries were um, the least likely to accept um, regulation. And I suspect that that is because of the role of the family in those, uh, in those countries, that it will be stronger than it is in, in other countries, and the belief system as well. And I think that, you know, if there is a, a, a solution to this, it has to be in the sphere of social and political life. It has to be that. It can't come from, from anywhere else because there is, 
currently a symbiotic relationship between the exposed vulnerable individual and the interventionist state. And that, as long as that remains the, the case, then we can't really expect anything to happen. Now, I, I, I am actually more optimistic now, and I, I know this is controversial, but I would say that the growth of populist parties across Europe is potentially, uh, because they are essentially rejectionist, right? they, they, I'm not saying that they're great parties, but they are rejectionist by nature, that in the process of rejecting the status quo, it could be that there comes out of that uh, as something positive in, in the future. Thank you very much indeed.